Hello and welcome to Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiri Duluale. Thanks for joining us today. Having been one of the frontline candidates ahead of the PDP presidential primary, my guest on the program says his withdrawal on principle has not prevented him from offering his full backing and support to the party's eventual candidate, Alhaji Atiku Abubakar. My guest also says the party's internal troubles will be reserved with compromise as the key ingredient. Newsnight talks to former presidential aspirant, chairman of the Renaissance Development Forum, Alhaji Mohammed Hayatudi. Alhaji, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us again. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alhaji. So not a few people were surprised uh, when on the eve of the primaries, uh, which was when we spoke to you last, uh, you withdrew and uh, you gave a couple of reasons. But then after that, you didn't expand beyond that. Why did you really withdraw from the PDP presidential primary? Well, I think first and foremost, Ladi, um, some background on context uh, is important. Uh, keep in mind that I actually joined partisan politics for the first time in January of this year, yes. when I made a declaration to join the uh, PDP Maiduguri. Second, in short order, I then went ahead and declared my intention to contest the presidency at the end of February. These decisions were quite monumental and consequential for me. Nobody who aspires to high office, either at the level of a governor or, in fact, the presidency, can afford to take this lightly. A lot of thought actually went into it, deep, profound thinking, before I decided to um, plunge into the waters. Plunge into the water. Remember that I have had a very strong and long corporate background, so this was something new to me. I think the second point that we are mentioning is that I was dead serious about going all the way, based on the fundamental assumption that the total number of delegates would be something in the order of 4,000. Unfortunately, due to some hiccups on the part of the legislature, all of the strategy and official delegates were struck off the list. Upon realization of that mistake, the bill was sent to the president for amendment. Up to the night of the convention, the president did not amend it. I, on my own part, had actually gone all over the country to see delegates. And many of these delegates were the strategy and official delegates. So like an emperor who has been left without clothes, I ended up dealing with elected delegates who had just been elected, one from each of the 774 local governments. And unfortunately, you know, the law of demand and supply, which you and I know about. By the time those numbers were shrunk to probably something in the order of about 20%, a bidding war began. And it was very, very difficult for me to visualize a situation in which a newcomer like me could actually have a fairly competitive contest, which was why I decided to back out. Which is why you talked about 
the monetization, the obscene monetization of the process. Because this small number of people were now like everybody's brides, as it were, and they were being sought after by anyone who really wanted to win this. Um, but in the aftermath of uh, that primary and then, of course, the emergence of Elijah Tikwabaka, uh, again, unlike most Nigerian politicians, you didn't cry foul at the level of the election. Um, it, it seemed as if uh, there was a great deal of reconciliation, at least from your side, uh, to the fact that, okay, this was the winner. Um, and in the immediate aftermath of that, um, what did you make of the process itself? I mean, you were no longer participating, so you were able to look at it from the viewpoint of an observer now, not a participant. I'm talking about the primaries itself and the immediate aftermath of it. What did you make of it, especially as you related it to the Electoral Act, which was, even while the process was ongoing, still being amended? Um, when you put all that together, do you, do you think that we took a step forward with this process or we actually went back? So the political culture since 1999 uh, has always been um, based on not only issues, but also based on the power of money. There's no doubt about it. And it cuts right across the political spectrum. It's not just PDP. Almost everybody. So that's point number one. Point number two, we're evolving as a democracy. And over a period of time, it is my own fundamental belief that our politics will become better, they'll become more issues-oriented, and that we get the right kind of people into office. Final point to make here, Ladi, is the fact that as far as the night of the primaries is concerned, regardless of whatever else that might have happened behind the scene, I believe that Atuka Awoka won fair and square because the entire process was very transparent. And people were free to actually vote for whom they wanted to. So I think for any um, fair-minded person, uh, nobody would say that that process was not fair and transparent. But uh, following the process and the emergence of Elijah Tikwa Baka, um, it seemed as if the zoning, which you and I discussed the last time we spoke about, reared its head, not, but not in the manner in which we spoke about. <laughs> yes. Um, a certain part of your party uh, seemed to think and believed that with the emergence of Alaji Atikwa Bubaka, then Dr. Yocha Ayu had to step down. In fact, they said he said he would step down if Alaji Atikwa Bubaka or any other candidate from the north, even including you, emerged as the candidate of the, um, of the party. That seems to have caused some level of rift, which is still ongoing. And uh, many of the people who would love the PDP to win and those who support the PDP, mm -hmm. I say, we've been here before. In 2015, we had a similar situation with this. Um, so my question to you is, what do you make of it? And are, are there actual efforts being put in place uh, to reconcile all the candidates on one hand, you know, those who participated in the contest, including people like you, and then on the other hand, those who are talking about this aspect of it, 
to bring them back into the tent. So I think part of Tommy is right in the sense that um, Lyndon Johnson, who actually coined this phrase, um, was quite right based on the conditions in America at the time. I think the second point that Bia is mentioning is that based on my own core beliefs, given where I'm coming from, 30, 35 years of core private sector experience, when you are waging a war, a battle to win, I think it is important to put certain things in perspective. I just do not understand and put my head around the notion that a chairman who was duly elected based on consensus amongst all the party leadership, including all the governors of the PDP at the time, would be required four, five, six, seven months after being elected or eight months after being elected with the election looming on the horizon for that person to vacate. I'm still struggling to understand what it is in terms of overarching goal that can be achieved with that particular decision. Because when you appoint somebody to the pinnacle of power, he establishes an organization, resources the place, gets to know the people, builds relationships, discusses strategic plan, tactical plan on how to go about winning the election in February of 2023. I do not see what the party has to benefit from the departure of Yocha Ayu at this particular point in time. Because what you then end up doing is starting all over again in terms of doing all those nuanced things about getting a new leadership, building rapport, reviewing the plans that are already in place. Because that person, whoever comes in, will have his own set of ideas. Does the party or the, even the country have time for that kind of thing? So that's my own fundamental view. But I do respect the fact that I'm, I have not been a mainstream politician. I don't know what it is that is driving that particular thing. Second, let me also say that I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Newsom Wiki. He's played a phenomenal role in the politics of this country, particularly between 2015 to date. Um, he's intelligent. He's sophisticated in many ways. He's highly energetic. He knows how to whip a crowd. He's his own salesman. I haven't heard anybody speaking for him. And he's made huge contributions from 2015 to date. So we need him. And we need him as a very, very important locomotive for moving us forward. And along with him, I also respect all the other governors who are sticking to him at this point in time. What I do think is that something ought to be done and done fairly quickly in order to, in order to bridge in, in order to bridge that particular divide between, uh, between them. Um, how I wish that 
Governor Wiki himself and the party chairman could just get into a room, close the door, slug it out. Politics is all about conciliation and compromise in a way in which they can both live and let live rather than winner takes all. Because what should be more important and more paramount both to Governor Wiki and to the chairman is the survival of the party, number one. Number two, for the party to wage a brilliant campaign in order to actually go ahead and win the election in 2023. I could also understand that if the logic, I could understand the logic if in fact Dr. Ayu was actually going to be superintending over two candidates from the same party going for that election. But it, it, it appears as if there's only, we, now, we know that there's only one candidate. So you cannot even accuse Professor Ayu of bias. So if he had a fear that he was going to be biased in favor of one candidate against the other, then what we are talking about today will make perfect sense. But everybody is rooting for just one candidate, Atiku Abubakar. And I think in the interest of peace, stability, and progress of the party, it is crucial that these highly talented people should actually come together in order to deal with this problem once and for all so that we can move forward. Let me bring you to um, the future, looking ahead now, because that's where the answer to the last question would naturally now. Um, we've seen some of the other parties where formidable candidates came out for the election and all of that, and in the aftermath of it, whoever it was that emerged, quickly went and got all the other candidates in uh, because in their individual capacities uh, they tended to add more strength to whoever it was that won. Um, I, and I'm going to ask you because you were one of uh, uh, such uh, candidates. In the case of the PDP, maybe it wasn't made public, maybe it wasn't out there, uh, but was that process undertaken? For example, are you actively involved in the Presidential Campaign Council of the PDP? Are other aspirants like you who participated in the process prior to the primaries, were they brought in? Are you being consulted now that the campaigns are uh, you know, getting off, uh, off the ground in the various states and all of that? Are you deeply involved? Okay, so number one, I would say that the, um, this particular campaign cycle is the longest perhaps we've seen in a long, long time. And therefore, there's a lot of organizational arrangements that need to be put in place in order to make things work. Three, your last, your last question actually spoke to a number of distractions these distractions have actually pulled resources away in such a manner that it was fairly difficult to actually get started in exactly the shape and form that we wanted. But even then, the PDP was actually miles ahead of, despite all the problems, miles ahead of everybody else in terms of putting together a manifesto, a strategic plan, in terms of even hitting the campaign trail. At least there was a month gap between between the political parties in that sense. Um, what we have done 
is that given the sensitivity of the issues concerned, and if you recall at the beginning, there were different party leaders who were saying all manner of things with regards to the division within the party and the need for reconciliation. Some of these were working at cross purposes. So messaging was a problem. And because messaging was a very big problem, sometimes Governor Wiki himself would react to some of these messages and it only ends up in muddying the water some more. It was therefore decided that the best thing to do was for almost everybody else to hands off and to have a dedicated team of people who will be working behind the scenes in order to find grounds for conciliation and compromise. So that's what, was, that's, that's what happened. Am I actively engaged in the campaign council? As a matter of fact, uh, I am. I had to travel for very important reasons. Um, um, and it was related, it was not unrelated to, you know, my work in the campaign council. I just came back. In that case, let me bring you to some of the issues now, um, because uh, everyone sitting uh, or watching this would know that uh, uh, Mohammed uh, Ahayatuddin is known more uh, for turnarounds and economic management than the politics. As you said, you joined only uh, uh, this year, uh, 2022. So let, let, let's come to some of the issues, particularly the economic ones. Um, today, as you and I sit here, when, when last we were sitting, we were discussing um, debt burden, we were discussing fuel subsidy, we were discussing unemployment and all of that. And um, if anything, the situation with some of those issues has become in fact worse between when last I spoke to you and now. If we take the issue of uh, subsidy, we're spending more because as I speak to you today, petrol prices in the commercial capital Lagos are 200 naira a liter. And the scarcity, the scarcity uh, even at that price, um, one can only guess how much this product is in other places, up country and all of that, which means we're spending more even to keep it at that level. Um, and that would presuppose that uh, our economic situation is worse. Um, in terms of uh, the debt burden, of course, we know what it is. Um, all kinds of demands are being made now, uh, in addition to the ones that have been on the ground, which are not necessarily capital expenditure. They are recurrent. Uh, ASU's just called off its strike. It's the, you know, there, there are all kinds of demands that involve money and a whole lot. What, what do you make of that now? And how much of the awareness of how bad things are do you think the, is, is there in the political space, especially in terms of proffering solutions? Okay, so I think this is the crux of the problem. You're asking a very fundamental question. The problem was that of expectations and psychology. That people have driven it into their heads that things are bad and they will continue to be bad. And therefore, in the context of Nigeria, we have had anemic growth for a very long period of time. We had severe, severe governance challenges. I would say, dare say, right from 2010 under Jonathan to date. There's a lot of loss of output. The country is poverty-stricken. Insecurity is a problem. 
COVID has impacted all of us psychologically, and the country is deeply divided. Psychologically, we are all gripped by fear and hopelessness, and we think that we are condemned. So my own view is that instead of just focusing on subsidies or power or any of these things, I think we need to get our mental state right. And the way to go about this is that in 2023, the new president needs to be very clear-headed about the fact that Nigerians have lost hope and he needs to elevate them to a higher plane, a place of hope and optimism. And the way to do this is to actually form a grand alliance of the elite. For everybody to be boxed into a room, the media, labor, women, youth, retired army officers, retired security officers, diplomats, etc. All of the constituencies that actually make up the elite base of this country, civil, civil society organizations, to actually get into a room so that we'll agree on an elite consensus as to what is the problem here and how do we find a cure for it. So that's on, that's on the philosophical side. Right. In concrete terms, speaking to your question, I believe that cash is king. Nigeria has, accountants have always said that cash is king, and it is true. Nigeria has a significant cash flow problem. And that's why everybody is crying. What we need to do is to unbundle our balance sheet and look at each item on the revenue side and the expenditure side to try to manage them better. On the revenue side, corruption is a very big problem. We're not getting value for the money that is invested. Second on the revenue side is the fact that the tax, tax collection is poor. The tax net is not wide enough. There are lots of other kinds of leakages that are going on as far as the revenue side of the balance sheet is concerned. And we're also contracting a lot of loans without showing much for it. Um, subsidies are actually eating up into this. The federal government is borrowing too much money. And the last time I looked at it, the overdraft from the central bank was something in the region of our 20 trillion dollars. Yeah. 20 trillion dollars. These are the things that need to be attacked one by one. But to be able to do these, all of these things are much more, given the limited space of this interview. I would say that the reform of the public service is exceedingly crucial. There is no president, even if he's a genius, who is capable of doing this alone or with a small group of people. So we need to revamp the public service so that it becomes a very fine engine for delivery of public goods and services. Second, the elite team that the president needs to assemble is akin to, you know, Germany, for example, is very well known for Volkswagen, I mean for, yes, for um, BMW, Mercedes, yeah, they make sorry, the fine, yes. yes. So they go for the best in the world, R&D, marketing, machinists, builders, as the very best in the world.
Nigeria, even in normal times, given where we are, we deserve the very best and brightest to be recruited into very important departments of government in order to move this country forward. Given that scenario and what has taken place so far, you referenced the fact that it took uh, quite a lot for uh, the process to get going, uh, uh, but that even with that, uh, the PDP was miles ahead of other parties. But one of the things which we discussed the last time uh, I spoke to you and which appears to still be a problem and which may have also caused significant delay is this issue of security. Um, I mean, not too long ago, um, both the United States and the United Kingdom issued travel advisories for Abuja, which is where most of the activity was going on. That's where the party's headquarters are. That's where meetings take place. That's where uh, all the logistics for all this movement across the country uh, was supposed to emerge. And um, I just use that as an example. In that kind of scenario, are you worried that even if all other things were okay uh, and that there weren't the other distractions uh, at the level of the parties themselves, the security would not create a situation where electioneering or elections might be difficult to conduct. Talk less of now talking about free and fair elections or, or an equitable and acceptable outcome. Okay, so uh, the terrorists are very smart and they are busy 24-7 um, gathering, assimilating and distilling and filtering information. There is no doubt about it. They know that this is high season for politics. They know that Abuja is a magnetic field. It stands to reason that as the security agencies run their various models, simulation exercises. It should have been very, it was, I'm sure it was very obvious to them that Abuja will become a target. The Americans or the British could not have left without good reason. Uh, they must have left for good reason. And I'm sure that intelligence has been shared, has been shared with, with Nigerians, Nigerians themselves. What encourages me are the following. Number one, the manner of voting this time has changed, giving very little room for you know, the kind of shenaganism that we had seen in the past. Number two, the security agencies have had a number of meetings where they actually run a different, different kinds of scenarios as to how security challenges are going to arise and how these are going to be managed and mitigated. Every time I open the 10 o'clock news on channels, hardly a night passed without me seeing Professor Mahmoud Yaqubu uh, with a deadpan face. But we very, very serious. Within the Riot Act, not only to his own people, but to political parties. A lot of Second, consultations are going in that front. And I think beyond that, there's also a lot of synchronization of efforts between um, the electoral empire and the various security agencies. And, and I understand mock drills are even going on now with regards to dealing with any emerging security crisis.
To cap it all, the president has said on several occasions, including recently, that he's committed to a free uh, and fair election. More importantly, there are many civil society organizations whose job it is to actually monitor these kind of things. And they've already started coming out to put their markers on the ground. Do not forget the actions being taken by monitors from Europe, Canada, America, and others. Now, by the time you agglomerate all of these efforts and bring them together and synchronize them, I would fully expect that we are likely to have an election that is decent, that will be respected, whose outcome will be respected by all. Skirmishes will always happen, but I do not expect the kind of large-scale violence that people are fearing. Uh, perhaps I, I should uh, move you in the direction of the broad picture of the campaign and, and the elections this time. Um, in 2019, in 2015, there were many parties. Uh, I believe that in 2019, there were anything like 90 parties. Uh, <laughs> and some people were saying we were getting to a ridiculous point. Uh, but today, there are actually only 18 parties. But of the 18, it would appear that depending on who you speak to, this is a four-horse race maximum. Uh, it's between your party, the APC, uh, the Labour Party, and the NNPP. Now, some are saying that the NNPP uh, is actually the PDP in disguise, uh, and that at the appropriate point, you know, uh, the master game plan will be unveiled. But while I don't expect you to tell me today in this interview uh, um, if that is so, I know if I ask, you wouldn't anyway. But broadly speaking, do you think the fact that it's a four-way race introduces more ideas into the campaigns, makes it more competitive, uh, or is it simply a question of, as some people had said, the voters get confused because, you know, they are not looking at two broad general differences uh, from which to choose what they want? So, first of all, this is a free and open space. Um, like you said, there are four parties. And there are the two established ones, clearly, PDP ABC. and ABC. They've been around for a very long period of time. Then there's Labour Party and NMPP. What I have seen, and that there is no question that is not a ruse, is for real. People are making a real attempt to tap into some popular sentiment about where this country has been, where it is now, and where it should be headed. And therefore, it introduces some excitement into the field and holds the feet of both PDP and APC to the fire, so to speak. And I think things are going exactly in accordance with the kind of trajectory that we should expect as our democracy evolves. And it does seem to me that the youth are highly disenchanted because of the current condition of the country relative to where most of progressive Africa is 
ready to where the world is going. And they see themselves slowly walking to their old age without a future. And therefore, what they are saying is that we are completely dissatisfied with the status quo and we need something completely different that is able to elevate us out of our rut at this point in time, that gives us the ability to, you know, get productively engaged, create wealth and prosperity, have a very beautiful environment that is conducive to stable and sustained economic growth, and where we can have a future that will be proud to have and to take unique pride in being a Nigerian and for Nigeria to become very robust and globally competitive. I think that's where people are coming from. And it's not just the youth. A large segment of the population would like to see such a thing happen. And therefore, it is my well-informed view that these things are not, these messages are not lost on either the PDP or the APC. And I can tell you that Atiku Abubakar is fully aligned to these lofty goals and objectives. His campaign document, which is called My Covenant with Nigerians, has five fundamental pillars that speaks to all of the contemporary issues that bothers this country. Number one is human development. Number two, he seeks to address the federal structure in terms of, you know, the relative powers of the federal government and that of the states, and also in terms of reducing the cost of public administration. Number three, he wants to give enormous amount of leverage and power to the Nigerian private sector so that it can do what it knows best by actually engaging in productive economic activities in order to expand output, create jobs, and also create prosperity while eliminating poverty as much as possible. Then the next thing is about unity. We have observed over several years, almost 10 years, that this country has been deeply divided. And what he wants to do is to actually bring the country back together under one tent so that we can celebrate our unity in diversity. And then finally, he's also speaking to the security issues in terms of you know, dealing headlong and effectively with our national security problems. If you'll give me a minute, I can also tell you that when you look at the man, Atiku, for most of his adult life, has been a federal officer, occupied a very, very high position uh, in a major federal government agency, Nigerian Customs Service, that had broad oversight over the entire Nigerian economy. He's functioned in many capacities in many parts of this country and has also had the ability to actually travel around the world. He played a very prominent role in our new dispensation going back to 1992-93, the time of Abiola and Kingibe, right. and almost became a presidential candidate himself at that point in time.
and he contributed enormously to the kind of struggles that were going on in the mid-1990s. He's been vice president for a period of eight years, and his boss, as good as he is, President Obasanjo, being a very good delegator, gave him an enormous amount of leverage with regards to superintending over this economy with a view to carrying out very bold economic reforms that have seen this country post sustained economic growth rates uh, of between 7 to 10 percent over a long period of time. They had completely revitalized this economy, privatized it, deregulated it, and liberalized it. All of that record is there. He has a hunch for actually hunting very, very good talent. Don't forget, he's also been a very successful businessman. He's succeeded in establishing a number of industries where he has shown a lot of success. And by nature, he's a free marketer. It just flows through his veins. Nothing would delight Achiku more than to come into office and unleash the entrepreneurial energies of Nigerian people so that they can realize their dreams. So that's the man. He's prepared for office from day one. And even under the Wasunja administration, he had, he had a knack for actually attracting talent. And it is true, you can investigate it and see. He always likes, likes to have very competent people around him. So that's why I actually support him uh, with all of my might. Given that scenario, of course, there are, there are, there are those who have argued that uh, uh, some of the things that you've referenced uh, uh, um, have tended to be unraveled to some extent subsequently by events that took place after uh, he and President Obasanjo fell out in the second term and what subsequently happened. The story is very well known. Uh, and I'm sure you know the story I like to do. But I, I, I don't want to use this interview to go back to that because we're talking about this current election circle now. And I, and, I, and I wonder if within those ideas that you've just espoused, particularly the five pillars you mentioned, um, we've seen it in other climes where at the, end of an, uh, at the end of a primary circle, whoever emerges the candidate is able to incorporate the ideas of other people who contested against him into, so you find the likes of uh, uh, Bernie Sanders' idea being incorporated by Joe Biden, uh, who won, uh, and, and all of that. Um, some, of the, or some of those people end up, in fact, in the cabinet uh, subsequently. Do you see a situation where some of the ideas that someone like you espouse, particularly the economic ones, and that's what I want to return to, because that's where you are an expert. Um, the economic ideas, uh, because I, everything seems to rest now uh, on where Nigerians feel they are or in terms of standard of living, what they're able to achieve honestly and legally uh, within the, the, the framework of the process. Do you, do you see a situation where they're able to incorporate some of these plans that you're talking about within what is currently happening going forward? That question is very insightful. Uh, you are speaking to one particular issue that I deeply and profoundly believe in. Given where Nigeria is, the kind of challenges that this country faces and the crisis of confidence 
that we face today. I would suggest that whoever becomes president, and in this case, I expect President Atiku, Vice President Atiku to become president. Whoever becomes president has to form a government of national unity. He has to form a government of national unity. There's no doubt in my mind. So it's not a PDP government or an APC government or a Labour government or an NPP government or an SDP government or a PRP government. The crisis of, con con the crisis of confidence has eaten so deep into the fabric of our society that whoever becomes president needs to stoop to conquer. He needs to see this as a mandate given to the whole of Nigeria, given to all the parties. Obviously, he's going to implement his party manifesto, but it needs to be highly inclusive, both in terms of programs, but also in terms of bringing in people, so that you can heal some of those devices and some of those wounds. It's crucial to succeed, in my view. And um, in terms of identifying what the key areas um, as, as, we are, as we are speaking now, there's been a change in power supply. So that brings me back to the issues, uh, to some of those key issues now. Uh, there are some existential, some people will call them existential issues, uh, that will have to be tackled by whoever becomes president almost immediately from day one, uh, right, probably from Eagle Square, uh, once he's taking the oath of office. Uh, one of them uh, uh, is uh, the issue of debt that I spoke about earlier. Uh, and uh, the, the second, uh, for the purpose of this interview, is power. There are a lot of people who say that if you give Nigerians steady power supply, leave them with their entrepreneurial skills, they won't bother you for anything else if they have power to pursue their dreams. Uh, and then, of course, there is those who are, you mentioned it earlier when you talked about the civil service, and those who are helping government shape and implement policy. Um, the issues of how sustainable is the size um, and the, the, the amount of money that goes into overheads within our civil service. Two existential issues here. And I, and I wonder what you make of how to tackle them. Have you seen, uh, you've talked about reform in terms of the civil service, but have you seen an actual plan that deals with that? Uh, so let me begin with the last. I think there is no need reinventing the wheel. Um, Dr. Adegore, who was in charge of the Bureau for Public Sector Reforms, under the Vasuja administration, with Atiku as a vice, had produced a brilliant document with regards to public sector reforms. Uh, Orasanye had also done a document a while ago aimed at actually um, downsizing the public service. There are many other documents, including Vision 2010. So there's no shortage of ideas with regards to what needs to be done. I think the important thing is the will. And now that we are facing issues pertaining to life and death of the country, I don't see any other option but for the president to actually roll up his sleeves on May 29th and carry out very bold, radical reforms with regards to the public service, both in terms of numbers, 
in terms of manpower development, in terms of hiring talent, and also in terms of putting together performance management systems to deal with measuring and evaluating and monitoring what people do. And then meeting our benefits or swift sanctions where people go wrong. There, is, there, are, there, there are no two ways about that. The second thing with regards to, um, I had mentioned earlier on that what we have is a cash flow problem. Yes. Now, what you need to do there is, number one, first of all, I think the problems are demonstrated by a very high debt to GDP ratio. The cost of debt service in relation to our uh, revenues, very high inflationary pressures, exchange rates that are running away from us. The difference today between the official NAFEX rate and the parallel market rate as of today is about 90% and running away. What we have is we have a big revenue problem. And what we need to do, in my view, are the, following, are the following set of actions. First, we need to identify other sources of revenue as quickly as possible. The biggest contributor to this are two things, in my view. One is the oil theft. To lose as, many as, as much as 900,000 barrels to a million barrels a day can only exist in a place like Somalia. I cannot even begin to visualize in my own mind how Nigeria with the functioning states and with all the levers of control in place can even begin to, because that's the goose that's laying the golden eggs. I can't, I can't, Lady, I can't understand it, how such a thing could, could happen. And for us, we just, go along with that as if everything is okay, other than to complain. The second thing is the humongous subsidy. Every time the price of oil goes up, the subsidy that is required also goes up in tandem. By the time you block these two, you will be in a very, very good place. Not completely, but you'll be able to deal substantially with some of these challenges, you know, revenue, revenue challenges and, and pressures. Three is corruption. Now, there's corruption in the oil and gas sector, but generally there's also corruption in other places. And it seems to me that what you need to do is that there are many ways in which you can actually generate new revenue. One, through a process of further privatization, concessioning, etc. These are federal assets. You sell them, you put money in the treasury. Second, you can actually go um, do your homework as a new government. Convince creditors that you are a new kid on the block. You are damn too serious. Begin by implementing a number of things that they can see that you are actually serious. And go for rescheduling of debt and debt reduction so you can get, you can get some breather, some breathing room so that your maturity profiles are then elongated over a period of time, and then the revenue you can actually use. There are many projects that are being implemented. We need to carry out an evaluation of these projects on the part of the federal government to see what it is we can do to prioritize them 
particularly those that are going to be very productive that can generate revenues in the near term and bring that revenues back into the system, implement it. With regards to power, uh, it is very, very clear to me that uh, we need to take those bold steps in order to open up, open up transmission in such a way that you can actually unbundle it. We stayed away from it for a very long period of time. We need many other renewable sources of energy so they can multi multiply and diversify your sources of generating power. And the BP has already taken over certain assets that were sold to private investors that is now trying to actually re-engineer. So the entire power sector I think, needs, needs very quick and bold um, reforms in my view. And it can be done. Elijah, today, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you very, thank very much. much. Thank you very much for thank speaking you. with us. Thank you. That's our program today. We would, of course, like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com forward slash podcast to get started. I am Ladi Akiri Dunwale. Goodbye.